Welcome to Sundial on WLRN. I'm Carlos Frias. The playwright Nilo Cruz is back in the town where he first found fame. It wasn't on Broadway, wasn't in New York City, but just off Lejeune Road in Coral Gables, where the world first discovered the play that would make Nilo famous, Anna in the Tropics. The play is set in a Cuban-American cigar factory in Tampa during the Great Depression. There, a lector reads novels to workers while they hand-roll cigars. A new lector comes into town to read the Russian novel Anna Karenina, and the lives of the factory workers begin to mirror the book's love triangle. The play would go on to win Nilo the Pulitzer Prize for Drama in 2003. Nilo eventually staged the play in New York with an all-Latino cast. It catapulted Nilo's career, and he continues to create dramas that inform Latino life and culture. He's back in Miami to direct the 20th anniversary production of Anna in the Tropics. This time it was met with some unexpected resistance. The play had been staged for high school students in the past, but this time the Miami-Dade County School Board rejected it for its steamy scenes. The school board eventually relented and allowed high school seniors to see the work created by a man who was once a Miami-Dade public school student, just like them. Anna in the Tropics is showing at the Colony Theater in Miami Beach, and Nilo Cruz is with us here today. Welcome, Nilo. Good afternoon. So let's kind of get that out of the way first. I'm curious to get your thoughts on it. You know, this play is sexy. It's seductive. It is visceral in ways. But did you ever encounter any kind of controversy like this over it? Only when the play was going to be done in Iran. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're in fine company then. <laughs> oh, man. Wow. Yeah, it was censored in, in Iran. And um, uh, they, were gonna, they did a, a reading of the piece, and it was going to be staged there. But, you know, I guess they have uh, committees there that, uh, that uh, judge the work that should be done on stage, and they didn't think it was appropriate for and- for the audience there, right, and that, and then you have that, that issue here. What I mean, it's been staged here before. Oh yeah, it and for has. students. Oh yeah, we I staged it at Coconut Grove Playhouse, and we had st- students come to see the performance. We kind of toned down some of the scenes when, when you know, the more graphic scenes, sexually sure. graphic scenes, uh, when the students came. And we should say the quote unquote sexually graphic scenes, nothing by the standards of what this, these same kids are seeing on TikTok or completely or whatever, right? Yeah, and I and actually I didn't tone down the the piece with this uh, uh, production here in Miami because the schools were coming. It's just I felt it was better to do it this way and uh, and you know uh, and suggest more than than be graphic, right? And so what did it say to you? Eventually they relented, but what did they, what did you feel when you? heard that they were they had rejected including it in the plays that they would show students well i was very disappointed yeah i mean and 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 to be honest with you i lost a whole week of work i just became very depressed because yeah, i mean this is this is where i live you know i grew up in miami and i went to miami senior high that's where and shenandoah and that's where i in shenandoah i discovered shakespeare and shakespeare changed my life wow. you know it's like i i wanted to immerse myself in that world i i through Shakespeare, I wanted to become a writer. And, and of course, there were other influential uh, writers as well, like Emily Dickinson, and of course, from uh, Cuba, Jose Martí. But, but imagine if I hadn't had that experience. So, so, so when this, the news came to me that they, had, they were censoring the piece, uh, it, it just broke my heart because, I mean, I yeah. just thought of, 
if if Shakespeare this did this to me and other plays have done have inspired me as well, I hope that my play does that for the new generation. Absolutely. And that's I imagine that that was the hardest part. But then eventually they came around. Yeah, yeah. We had a meeting with the with the school board and uh and you know and and they eventually said that yeah, decided that they were going to bring the schools to see the play. And you you were g- always going to direct it? Always going to direct it. Yeah. I started as a director. Really? Yeah. Cuz you don't cuz folks you know that you're directing this play but you don't you don't often direct. I don't always direct because in the theater world they first of all just because you're a writer doesn't mean that you're a good director. And also dealing with actors, you know, it's <laughs> you you have to play not just a director, you have to be a father, you have to be a counselor, you have to be and very patient. You know because they have their own process too and we must respect their process. Mm-hmm. And uh, and and to be honest with you, not all playwrights can direct right. uh, the work. And I and I, I totally understand, especially at the beginning when the play is being born, you sort of want to step back a little bit and wear and wear the playwright's hat instead of wearing the director's hat because you're still exploring the play as a writer. So I, you know, usually a first production of the play is usually directed by someone else. Like, well, for instance, when it was directed, he, when it was produced here in Miami, it was directed by Rafael de Acha, which had the uh, new theater uh, yeah. in Coral Gables. And it's so interesting to me. What must it be like when you see your play staged and you've written your actors, you've written the parts of these characters in your mind, and then you see other people fill it with their own humanity? What is that like? Well, I mean, the beautiful thing about theater is that uh, it's... It's a very generous art form, mm. meaning that you want the interpretation of an actor. You want the interpretation of a set designer, of a music designer, uh, of a sound designer as well, because they also bring their own take on the narrative, you know? And um, so, I mean, that's why I think it's one of the most gener- one of the most generous art forms uh, there is because of uh, it brings so many people together to tell a story. And the actors that you have playing here, tell me a little bit about that process of bringing them in because there are some some great uh, um, there's some great acting in this play. We saw it over the weekend for the first time and which I think is interesting because even though this play has been around for 20 years, there's people there are people discovering it every day like my one of my young producers in the other room who's who came with us to see it. Y tenía mucha pena to come say hi to you. Te escondió en una esquina. so uh, what you know Tell me about that, about these actors that are that are in it this time around. There, there are many many of the actors in the in the piece I've worked with in the past. Mm. Uh, for instance, uh, the owner of the factory, uh, the character he's of, amazing. of Santiago. Yes, the he's, he's wonderful. The, he's fantastic. He's been in like four of my plays, so he's an actor that I worked with in in the past. An actor that understands my language and understands uh, my world, and understands my staging as well. Because if you notice, it's very physical too. Uh, and uh, and then there's Anya Guillen who plays the character of Conchita. She's in she's been in many of my plays before, and actually it, it was Anna in the Tropics, uh, the play that um, inspired her to take acting classes. Wow! Yeah, yeah. And, that, and but see, that's what you were talking about. Yeah. What some creation can inspire and in others to create and yeah. build from there. Yeah. That is fantastic. Yeah, and then we have Sandra Santiago too, who was the the actress in Miami Vice, and I remember you know seeing Miami Vice uh, 
uh, when I was much younger. And uh, she's someone that I worked with in the past when I lived in New York. And so I thought, let's bring her, you know, let's do a, a comeback uh, to, to Miami with, with her. You know, it, My advice, can we just say, how, have you ever gone back and watched it and how many great actors yeah. came through that show? It was ridiculous. I know. I know. I, I have. I have. Uh, in a couple occasions, I've gone back to the piece and 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 just remember those times, those wild times in in, in Miami. <laughs> I was here then, you know. <laughs> well, you know, it's funny that taking us back to those times, put us back in where you were when you wrote Anna in the Tropics. I came to Miami. I was living in New York, and I came to Miami because I got a residency at New Theater in Coral Gables through a National of the Endowments uh, Art uh, Grant. Of the arts, right. Uh, yeah, so I came here, and part of the residency was for me to uh, do a couple of workshops at the theater and to write a new play. And you were a Miami kid in, a, in the sense that you're born in Cuba, but you grew up I grew here. up here, yeah, yeah in so, Little Havana. Yeah. So that must have been an exciting time for you as well to be Yeah, because here. I left, and, uh, and I was gone for some time. Then I came back to Miami. So it was a way of, you know, embracing a little bit of my history. And uh, and my father had told me about the the uh, the tradition of lectores, of lectors in the cigar factories in Cuba. And it always fascinated me. The fact that there was someone reading uh, novels and also from newspapers uh, to to the workers. And, it, it you know, it just the whole concept was really had stayed with me. And when because it's this idea that uh, the workers are doing this, what's well, very a, tedi- a tedious job. They're hand rolling cigars, and then they have this lector, this this narrator who reads from books and, and play. It reminds me a little bit of a uh, News of the World, that book and movie. Where well, I mean, if you think about it, the lector uh, is what later became a a a host, a radio host, right? Because we had lectores <laughs> before we had the radio. It was actually the radio. Uh, first of all, then there was in, in, the industrialization of, of those cigar factories. And with the machines, a lot of the lectors weren't being heard. And then they brought microphones so they can hear the lectors over the sound of the machines. And then that didn't work as well. And then there was the invention of radio. And then the radio, of course, after that, the tradition came to an end in the United States. Wow. So radio killed the lector star. Radio killed. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah. Oh, that's funny. So that time in your life, you're reconnecting with so much of your, your Cubanness. it yes, sounds like. Yes, absolutely. And I wanted, you know, listen, I, I just wanted to document a little bit of our history, especially in Florida. And the fact that there was a, this influx of uh, exiles that moved here from, from, from Cuba in the late 1800s. Right. And there was a gentleman by the name Ibor, uh, Vicente Martinez Ibor, who moved from, from Cuba to Key West and started a, a cigar factory there. The problem with Key West at the time is that you can only get to it by boat. Right. We didn't have the seven, the the seven miles. Right? <laughs> yes. yes. So, so, so he started his company there. He was doing very well, but you know he wanted to expand. And then there was an opportunity for him to um, to bring his companies to to Tam- to Tampa, Florida. Right. And and so he started his business there because there was a, a railway at that time in Tampa, Florida. So it was better to export uh, the, the the tobacco and. Uh, uh, so so that so he started a company there, and then years passed. It was a little city created, and it was named after him. 
And uh, by 1929, there were like 200 uh, cigar factories in Tampa. And 1929 is when... It's when the play happens, the yes. Play is set. Yeah, it's set. So, so, you know, I know you've brought um, a part of the script of the play. I'd love for you to read a little bit of it. Uh, can you put us in a... So just a, the general context of the play is they have these lectores. There's a new lector that comes into town, and he is... Uh, he, the first book he decides to read is Anna Karenina. And I want to talk to you about what, later why you, why you picked that book for him to read. And it sets into motion these uh, underlying uh, issues that are, that are going on within the characters, the people working in the factory. So, Nilo Cruz, please, please take us to where we're going next here. Yeah, so this is, um, this is a moment in the script in which uh, you can see how the book is making the workers think and how, through the book, they start to meditate on their own lives, mm. but also they start to to find a way of speaking to each other. So this is a scene between a two workers in the in the cigar factory, a husband and wife, Conchita and Palomo. And they've been having problems with their marriage. And through the book, they're able to talk to each other. You know? Mm. Uh, so this is uh this is the so this is what the scene is about. And and here we have the character of Conchita, uh, who approaches uh, her husband, Palomo. And I'll read the, f the, the name of the character uh, before I read the, the dialogue, uh, because that way we can follow the, you're the trajectory. Listen, you're the pro, man. <laughs> okay. This is your show right now. All right. So this is Conchita. And how do you like the novel that Juan Julian is reading to us? Palomo. I like it very much. Conchita. Doesn't it make you feel uncomfortable? Palomo, why would it make me feel uncomfortable? Conchita, the part about the lover? Palomo, <laughs> it seems like in every novel there's always a love affair. Conchita, and do you ever think about everything that's happening between Ana Karenina and her husband? Palomo, mm, yeah, I, I do, but I... Uh, Conchita, so what goes through your mind when you listen to the story? Palomo, I think of the money all those people have, Conchita. <laughs> you would say something like that. Palomo, why? Because I like money? Conchita, I'm talking about literature and you talk about money. Palomo, and what do you want me to say? Conchita, I want you to talk about the story, the characters. Palomo, wouldn't you like to have all the money they have? So you don't have to spend the whole day rolling cigars and working after hours so we can save some money and have our own business? Conchita, I don't mind rolling cigars, Palomo. And what's so good about rolling cigars, Conchita? My mind wanders to other places. Palomo, what places, Conchita? Places and things money can buy, Palomo. Oh, money, 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 money can buy everything, Conchita. <laughs> Not the places I go to in my mind, Palomo. And what kind of places are you talking about, Conchita? Places made of dreams. Palomo, <laughs> you're a strange creature, Conchita. I don't know why I married you, Conchita. You married me because the day you met me, I gave you a cigar I had rolled specially for you. And when you smoked it, you told me I had slipped into your mouth like a pearl diver. Palomo, I told you that. Conchita, yes, you did. After blowing a blue ring of smoke out of your mouth and the words lingered in the air like a zeppelin. And I thought to myself, I could fall in love with that mouth. Palomo. As far as I can remember, I married you because I couldn't untie your father's hands from around my neck. Conchita, ah, 
the truth comes out. That explains everything. You never really cared for me. Palomo, are you trying to start a fight? Conchita, no, I asked you a simple question about a love story and you're being foolish. Palomo, never mind. Then Conchita says, you don't care about anything, do you? Juan Julian could be reading a book by Jose Martí or Shakespeare and everything goes in one ear and out the other. Palomo, I pay attention to what he reads. I just don't take everything to heart the way you do. Conchita, well, you should. You remember the part of the book in which Ana Carolina's husband is suspicious of her having an affair with Vronsky? Remember when he paces the room like a lost animal? Palomo, I know where you're trying to get at. Conchita, I just want to have a civilized conversation the same way the characters speak to each other in the novel. I've learned many things from this book. Palomo, such as jealousy. For Anna's husband, jealousy is based on almost animalistic, and he's right. He would never want Anna to think that he's capable of such vile and shameful emotions. Palomo, but you can't help being jealous. It's part of your nature. And then she says, oh, I could see the husband so clear in the novel. How the thoughts would take shape in his mind as they have in my own mind. I mean, I mean, not the same. No, no, no. Not the same because he's an educated man surrounded by culture and wealth. And I'm just a cigar roller in a factory. He is well-bred and sophisticated. I barely get by in life. But with this book, I'm seeing everything through new eyes. What is happening in the novel has been happening to us. No, 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 no. Don't look at me that way. You might not want to admit it, but Anna and her husband remind me of us. So here you can see how the book is really affecting them. That was Nilo Cruz, the playwright reading from his Pulitzer Prize winning play, Anna in the Tropics. And really in this scene, they are learning to speak they're learning a vocabulary that they can speak together. Absolutely. And all through the novel. Yeah, and all through the novel. And if you really look at, at the whole piece, it's it happens to all the characters. In many ways, they can talk about themselves through the novel, which is, which is what I think that art does. I mean, when we, when we go see a movie or when we go see a play, when we leave, we you know we, we talk about what, what we just saw, and sometimes we... we um, we see ourselves in a character. I think we all have a a movie or book or a play that we say, ah, oh, it was that play that changed my life. It was that book that changed my life or that movie. And this is what Anne in the Tropics is all about. It's about the power of literature, the power of the spoken word, and how uh, literature can offer possibilities uh, for those who are, are, are reading a novel. I want to talk about how this play changed your life, because I know it did, but we're going to take a little break first. We're speaking with Nilo Cruz, the playwright of the Pulitzer Prize winning play, Anna in the Tropics, that's playing at the Colony Theater. We'll be back in a second. And we're back on Sundial. This is Carlos Frias, and we're speaking with Nilo Cruz, the Pulitzer Prize winning playwright of Anna in the Tropics, which is playing in Miami Beach uh, for its 20th production, which he is directing. Now, when he wrote that play in 2003, it quite literally changed his life. Nilo, that, what I found interesting is that that was the first time, if I read correctly in a New York Times article, that a play had won the Pulitzer on just the libretto alone, on just the book itself. In other words, the, 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 
Pulitzer Committee hadn't seen it staged. Yes. They just it just won on the power of the story and the words. What what did that mean to you, as a, as a person who had been writing for a while, I think about ten years at the time, really professionally? What did that mean to you? Well, it means that that they chose the play based on on the written word, and that's the way it should be. I mean, think about it. I can take the yellow pages, the the names on the yellow pages, and read it in a certain way where it sounds like maybe these were the names of people that died in September 11th, just by the way I read those names. Mm -hmm. So in other words, theater is all about interpretation. Uh, a director is interpreting the play, actors are interpreting it, Sometimes scripts are not that great, but you get a really good actor and you get a really good director. <laughs> and they can elevate it. And they elevate it to another level. Right. So it's really wonderful that they chose the the play based on just the written word. Uh, and I, I misspoke. I should say this is the 20th anniversary production, not the 20th production. Um, tell, tell me a little, a little bit about, like there's Anna Karenina, the novel features so prominently in this. How did you be? Did you fall in love with Russian literature, like that, which is like the the final step, right? It's like the final evolution for readers is is when you tackle Russian the Russians, right? It is it is a favorite book of mine, and it it always stayed with me. And when when did you come across it? In my twenties. Oh, your twenties. Yeah, okay. yeah. Um, it's it's a difficult book to read. I mean. Uh, there's a lot of uh, spirituality in the book, uh, and uh, but it came to me around that time, and I was ready for it, um, and it always stayed with me. So when I my the genesis of of Anna in the Tropics, it, it really starts with the lector and the tradition. What I was telling you that my when, when my father had told me about. Uh, this history. This history, right. yes. This and history. Uh, so so it when I started writing the play, I started with a lector, and then it occurred to me, well, what is he reading? Mm. What is he reading? And I said, well, it's got to be, it's, you know, it's got to be a classic, of course. And and there were a couple of books that I considered, but then I stayed with Anna Karenina, uh, again, because it's a, it's a book that I love very much. And I always felt that it should be a Russian novel, because at one point the play was going to take part uh, in more recent times, like when the when the when we had the Russian presence, the Soviet presence in Cuba, during the 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 seventies and the eighties. Uh, so I thought it. I, I was toying with that at the beginning, and I thought it would be great if we have a Russian a novel that is being read in the in the late eighteen hundreds and then but also in modern times in in, in Cuba. It's casting an echo Completely. into that time. Yes. So and then I veered away. Then when I you know, again through the research, I started writing the, the piece and then doing because I write and I research, write and research. So then when I discovered that the tradition came to an end in nineteen twenty nine with the crash of the of the market, of the stock market, um and you know, and that industry unfortunately, you know, disappeared from Tampa as well. Um, I thought I had to set it in 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 nineteen twenty nine. And also, you know, if I would have played with both moments in time, the late eighteen hundreds and more recent times, there would have been more of a historical play, and those are harder to to produce. And I thought, you know what? Tradition is a good thing. 
let's remember other plays that are dealing with tradition, like uh, Fiddler on the Roof, that wonderful musical, which is all about tradition. So, you know, I thought, well, let's uh, bring a Cuban tradition that was brought to this country in the late 1800s. Why not? And I love that you're talking about tradition, and it's almost woven in with your father telling you this story. Tell us about your dad. I remember reading that he, there was this one line that he was, uh, he tried to leave Cuba. You were born in, in Matanzas. He tried to leave Cuba, and he spent two years in prison, uh, much like my dad was trying to leave Cuba mm. and spent two years in prison and two years in an agricultural camp. So that really resonated with me. What do you remember about that time? How, how old were you? And, and take us back to... I was very young. I was, uh, uh, when he came out of prison, I was like four or five years old. And, you know, I didn't know my father very well. And it took time for me to, to get to know him. And I was very jealous of him because, you know, he was occupying a place that I had, you know, with my mother. Uh, meaning that, you know, sometimes I sleep in my mother's bed, you know, and, well, my and so all of a sudden, who's this man, man that now is occupying my place? Man that's horning in on my life here. <laughs> yeah. Oh, how 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 hard how hard to have been missed him have missed those years. Yeah. It must have been very difficult for him. And for me as well. Yeah. You know, because then I you know I had to again uh, forge a you know or start a relationship uh, with him. Uh, so, and he was a broken man. He was a broken man when he came out of prison. Uh, you know. Everybody in the neighborhood knew that, you know, he was disappointed with with what was happening in Cuba at that time with the regime and and knew that that he wanted to leave. So he was was not part of the system, you know. Uh, uh, so he was a broken man. Yeah. Know? Did I, I know that women I've read that women have played a strong role in your life, which is and they play a strong role in 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 in, 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 in the tropics. tropics. And also you see the broken men, too. Like the father is broken. I mean, the ma- the 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 father has problems with you know gambling, and you know at one point he just gambles a little too much, and uh, which puts the even the family business in jeopardy. So so, but he's also a broken man in some ways. You know, Ch- Chester is a broken man in in uh, the character of uh, uh, Santiago's half brother, who comes from Trenton and comes to work to the to the cigar factories in Tampa. Right. Uh, he's also a broken man because his life, his wife left with, with Elector and, and he's right. completely uh, devastated by that. Talk to me about growing up here, like the role that your parents had in them because obviously you, you recognize now that what your father had, the things that happened when prison in Cuba uh, affected his, his life. What was your growing up like? I became an adult uh, a little too too fast when I came into the to the states. Uh, and, what and do you so, mean? Well, I think if it, for me it was like my childhood sort of ended. I had to become an adult. I, uh, I, all of a sudden I was translating for my parents because I didn't speak the language, <laughs> and common. I was the one who was going. You know, immediately they started to work. It's, it's sort of the what happens to to migrants or exiles. And so I was learning the language. Immediately, I was, you know, reading letters that would come in the mail. Uh, I didn't have a lot of friends. Only had the friends in schools, and my my parents were very protective of me because uh, there was certain violence in in Miami around that time. Uh, there were a lot of riots and uh, that were occurring, and uh, so they didn't understand that. They, they had never experienced that in Cuba. So they were very protective of me and sort of like, you know, that uh, I, I felt like, you know, I grew up really fast and just a matter of like 
months. Mm-hmm. And and what about the role your your mom and your grandma played in your in your life? Well, you know, when my father was missing, you know, they're the ones, in, especially in Cuba, they're uh-huh. the ones that had to work. They're the ones who kept uh, the family together, uh, both my grandmother and uh, and my mother. And also, but, you know, my sisters, they were 10 years apart from me, and uh, uh, they were also very instrumental uh, in in terms of my of my education it you had two older sisters two older sisters yeah yeah oh so women really women uh, yeah. uh kind of uh coming to your coming to your age so to speak or coming to being around your life your whole yeah. your whole growing up yeah and 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 and, and women that take command you know and uh and take charge of right. of, of of the household right how did they receive your interest in becoming an artist how did that emerge and did they see it before you did uh they were they were very open very receptive my mother gave me a typewriter uh when i was uh 12 and she said you're going to be a writer i know i know so oh wow she she knew it right away oh she she you know i was writing poetry i was writing little scenes here and there so she 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 knew it and so she gave me first a a a regular typewriter and then much later when i was in uh 19 she gave me an electric typewriter so she was you know she was there supporting me all along what did it mean for her to see your play staged one of your plays staged for the first time like in a in a professional setting like that you know it was such an honor for her and 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 she was always then after, after when she knew that 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 it wasn't just a dream that that dream was coming it was becoming a reality uh you know, my mother sometimes would read articles from the newspaper and would send them to me because she thought that the subject matter would make an interesting play. Wow, was she was she a a, 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 a an artist herself? Like, uh, I don't at least think a so. Ment- I don't think she one? was an artist, but but she had the sensibility to receive a great works of art and 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 to have respect for them. Uh, she would have made a great producer. She would have. She would have made a great producer. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me about. Um, so we talked about this play and how it comes about. And right around that time, I want to say like, Oscar Ijuelos wins the Pulitzer Prize for fiction. fiction. It's the first Cuban ever to do it. Uh, Liz Balmaceda locally wins a, a Pulitzer Prize for journalism. And I think she's the first Cuban American or Cuban to ever win that. That's kind of like in, in that ten years around you. What is how does your life change when you win the Pulitzer in two thousand three? Well, first of all, when I when when I heard that Ijuelos had won the Pulitzer Prize, and I immediately went and and bought the book and fell in love with this book. And that's and, the Mambo King's play Mambo, Songs yeah, of Love, which yeah, which I think is it's it's a brilliant work of art. Uh, and f- so for me, it, it it was it was almost like a miracle to be honest with you. I had just finished teaching a class at Yale University. I was teaching at Yale. Uh, prior to that weekend, I had been to, uh, I had received another award. I had received the Steinberg Award at the Humana Festival in Kentucky. Uh, and uh, someone, someone, I was watching a play and someone in intermission said to me, oh, uh, I heard that your, your, your play might be a finalist. Your, th- actually, that your play is a finalist for the Pulitzer. And I said, Really, I mean, I knew I had been nominated, but I didn't know I was going to be a finalist. I mean, I think this person was not supposed to tell me anything at all, <laughs> but sort of like, 
you know uh, told me uh, and 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 I remember seeing I was watching a play and I when I went back to the theater couldn't even watch a second part of the play because my mind started to wander to so many places like I'm thinking what if, what happens if I win this award you know so the next day I went to teach after the festival I went to teach at Yale um I told the students that <laughs> what I had discovered and I said do you mind if I leave my phone on kind of disrespectful because I don't let the students keep their phones on in <laughs> class but but they said of course you know if you get it of course it, please and so the class finished that day and I didn't hear anything and then I happened to be at the train station in New Haven and I heard and that's when I got a call that I had won the Pulitzer Prize so at, and immediately it was a I've got a, a barrage of phone calls from the Washington Post, the New York Times, etc. But not from the Pulitzer people. Actually, it was journalists who were calling me. It wasn't. You actually find <laughs> out. You actually find out much later when you get a telegram. You get a telegram from them, which I love. I, That's so old time. It's so old time. It's wonderful. <laughs> no, a telegram. It's fantastic. That is beautiful. I love it. And uh, so, but but you know, and when I got home that day, there was a. Oh, and on the way from from New Haven, it started snowing. <laughs> I mean, come on! And it was already late in spring, so it was like this miracle. This is sort of like the same romance in the novel was happening in my life as well, with snow, with you know, the play has so much to do with Russia, Anna Karenina, etc. A train station, which we know it's prevalent, and so yeah, it, it's Karenina. so important <laughs> in, uh, in you know in Anna Karenina. So. There was this beautiful romance that came with 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 that uh, that day with my learning that I had you know that that I had won one of the most prestigious awards in this country, uh, and of course then from then on my life changed. Well, I want to talk about why the play still resonates and how you continue to create super interesting work uh, with Latino culture in mind. But we're going to take a little break yes. and then we'll be back with Nilo Cruz, the Pulitzer Prize winning playwright of Anna in the Tropics. We're back on Sundial. This is Carlos Frias, and we're with our guest, Nilo Cruz, the Pulitzer Prize-winning playwright of Anna in the Tropics. This play is being staged for its 20th anniversary, and it still resonates. Why do you think that is? I think it has to do with uh, with the power of literature. Mm-hmm. You know, the the again, you know, it's the fact that we we all have you know the, those books, that movie, that change. Our lives, or makes us see things in a new in a new light. Change change is, is a strong concept, but makes us see things in a new light. And I think that's what Anna does, uh, and especially during these times. Um, if you think about this play, which again embraces literature, uh, contrary to what is happening nowadays, in which so many books are being banned in the United States, something unheard of. I mean, that used to happen more like in the 30s and the 40s, but not in recent uh, times. So I think the fact that this play does the opposite, you know, that, again, it honors the the, the written word. Um, I think uh, those people who are sensitive, right, to, to books and um, in some ways connect with the material. This play is also, it's a love story, too. I mean, we all like a, a good love story. It's a play about family as well. Uh, and it's a play about immigrants and, uh, you know, how these, basically these immigrants worked. They were Cuban, 
Spaniards and Italians working in, in, in Tampa. And they, you know, they, they helped create a whole city in Tampa, Florida. They built that city. Yeah, They absolutely. built that city. Yeah. yeah. And there's, and there's so much, so many lessons of that in Miami as well about immigrants building a, a city. Um, have you, have you thought about the other ways that you mentioned all these, these books that have been banned, the way that literature has influenced your life? Like, does it still continue to talk to you into your current work, speak to your current work? Yes, always. Uh, there's always something, you know, every time I, I, I read a book, I, there's something that I take with me. And, uh, and uh, yeah, I'm inspired by life and by mm. my surroundings, but also by the work of other writers as well. There's a work that you produced that I wanted to ask you about, um, El Ultimo Sueño de Frida Diego. Uh, and it's, uh, if, if I understand correctly, it's, it's uh, kind of the story of Frida Kahlo escorting Diego Rivera's uh, soul into the afterlife based around a Dia de los Muertos. Yes, uh, it's an opera. And uh, there's been a lot of uh, material about Frida and Diego Rivera in, I would say, in the past 20 years. There's that wonderful movie by Salma Hayek. There's also a couple of plays. Uh, and there's a lot of, there's some fiction out there and nonfiction as well uh, about them. So I didn't want to do the 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 sort sort of like the usual narrative that we know of Frida Kahlo and their and and that re, that tormenting sort of like relationship, the tormenting sort of relationship, that whirlwind of a relationship they had. Uh, so I I there's something that I read when doing the research is that when 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 Diego was about to die, he wanted his ashes to be reun to be united with with Frida's ashes. And, and I thought that was so beautiful because they were kindred spirits. They really loved each other despite, you know, all the problems that they had in their relationship and, 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 and all the, the fact that they were both very unfaithful to each other. Um, it, so this concept of that unification was, I felt so, 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 so beautiful that I thought, and also the Day of the Dead is so prevalent in, in su such an important holiday in Mexico. And they love, they celebrated the, the Day of the, uh, of the Dead and sort of that Mayan culture and the Aztec culture of, of Mexico. And that and I you, thought... And you co-wrote this play with, I, or this, this opera with uh, a, Me a Mexican-American woman. No, no, she's from Peru. She's, she's from, from Peru. Uh, and she's a composer, Gabriela Lina Frank. And she wrote the music and I wrote the libretto. So we thought of uh, setting it on the Day of the Dead in which uh, a reluctant Frida comes back to life, but comes back to maybe paint. Uh, and and when she comes back, you know, she finds out that he's very, that Diego is very frail. So she becomes almost like a guide for, for, uh, for, for Diego uh, to pass to the world of the, the infra world, you know, the world of the of the dead. This this is playing in California. Are we going to get it at some point down here in Miami? Yeah, it's gonna it's gonna play uh, this year uh, in San Francisco uh, in the summer. I'm hoping I would love to bring it to Miami. I, uh, Let's I'm, go, our center. Let's make that happen. <laughs> I, I'm curious about because that your your work has always been has always centered Latino and Hispanic culture. Um, did that was that important to you? Has that been important to you in your career? It's important to me. I mean, I I like to write about what I know, and sometimes I also like to write about what I don't know as well. <laughs> but I think it's a responsibility. I think it's it's important for me to write about a uh, Latinos and uh, 
you know, uh, because it's important to represent that identity on, on the stage. Do you think winning the Pulitzer gave you the opportunity to do that? Did that open the doors to be able to say, I'm going to do some things my way and I'm going to tell certain stories that I haven't seen told? I tell you one thing. Uh, when I won the award, there are a lot of people that came to my agent from Hollywood and for me to write things that have nothing to do with my work, sort of commercial work, mm. like a baseball story or, you know, just typical commercial films that you would see on TV. Interesting. And that had nothing to do with my work. So I had to have a conversation with my agent. I said, you know, I'm sorry. I mean, I've worked very hard in my life and I will continue to work hard for stories that I believe in. And th these stories are, are good, but they don't speak to me. So I made a choice to continue to do the work that I've always done and not to repeat myself. I'm not interested in repeating myself. And I'm not interested in repeating out in the tropics. Uh, again, for me, it's about where am I as, as a writer and, and the, continui the continuity uh, of, of where I left off. How are you as a writer now different than you were when you wrote Anna? 20 years ago what are you thinking what things are you thinking about these days i tell you something you know being immersed in this language and in this, this world in the past uh four weeks has has, has made me fall in love when i'm in the tropics again really and there's a part of me that, that, that thinks oh i wish i could go back to this to this voice you know the the voice that i basically used you know with i in the tropics but you know i mean I'm somewhere else right now as a writer. And so many things have come my way, like opera. Mm. I've written two operas. I've written a series of or oratorios as well, which is sort of like, it's like an opera, but you don't stage it. It's it's narrative that is sung. And uh, I've also written uh, for film, uh, a few uh, screenplays. And all these things inform your writing, inform who you are as, as a writer, and they give you tools. So, so eventually the writing changes and it will continue to change and you want the writing to evolve and as just as you're are evolving as a human being. Right, and there's, there's something exciting to that, right? To letting your work f shape you as you go. Listen, for me, writing is all about exploration. To me, I always think that a writer is almost like a traveler and not a tourist. A tourist, you know, goes with, with a set itinerary. A traveler is completely different. A, tra a traveler wants to be surprised, and I want to be surprised as as a writer. And you and you found that is that that is that how you describe yourself as a traveler? Completely, completely, and it, it's part of my process to be surprised. I, I and I usually when I begin the writing process, I don't. I begin with maybe a concept, and I maybe an idea or or with a character, and then I sort of let the story take its its own shape. And because I want to be surprised by the story. I mean, I think just one part of that is the fact that you're writing operas. If you had been, if you, were, if I had told 20-year-old Nilo that you'd be writing operas uh, in your 60s, uh, I imagine that would be a surprise. It would be a surprise. What was the first opera that you saw? Oh, God, I'm trying to think. Uh, or one that impressed, like one that's impressed on your mind uh, that, that really kind of made you think, oh, I could maybe do this? Do I have an opera in me? Uh, I think it was... I think it was Madame Butterfly that I saw and that um, I just love the, the grandness of the canvas. One of the things that I like about opera is that it's, 
it offers more theatricality, room for theatricality. I find that North American theater sometimes tends to be a li- too too realistic. Hmm. And in opera, if you think of the of the themes in opera, they're most of them are mythical. Of course, they're of course they're great. They're tragedies, great love stories. But also, what you can do on the stage to how the 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 music, the singing can elevate the language to another level, and and also visually, you know the the expanse that you have with 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 that canvas is so much larger than the, what theater offers. Right, and and it's each one is like a level of more imagination. Like theater requires much more imagination than TV, and then opera requires more imagination than theater. That's correct. Right, that's correct. We have uh, a couple minutes left. Is there something that is there a piece left that you would like to read that you think you could read in, uh, in oh a, in a couple minutes? I'm like, oh yes, because um, I would love to, I would love to hear to let the audience go out with another a little bit of that that honey in your voice and the story of Anna in the tropics uh, since it's now being staged for its 20th anniversary. Yeah, so this is a this is a scene in which uh, the lector, uh, Juan Julian, has just finished reading uh, an excerpt from Anna Karenina. And uh, so, and he leaves the room. And so we get the reactions from the cigar workers. And this is uh, a scene, again, you know, taking place with the cigar workers. Marela is the young woman in the family. Ophelia is the matriarch. And uh, you have other characters here like Chester, who works in the factory as well. And then Palomo, who is Conchita's husband. <laughs> it's hard to remember all of this, but I'll give you an example. Here's Marela. Ah, why does he always end when he gets to the good part? The mother. To keep us in suspense, Conchita. To keep us wanting more, Marela. He's really a fine lector. Ophelia. <laughs> That's why he's called the Persian canary, because it's like hearing a bird sing when he reads. Marela. And can you smell the cologne from his handkerchief every time he dries his forehead? The fragrance wraps itself around the words like smoke. And here we have Cheche. Oh, Lord, exactly what I expected. Now they'll sigh and chat about the love story for hours. Marela. I heard that, Cheche. Oh, but this is the part I like the most. When you start discussing things, for some reason, I never hear the story the same way that you do. Palomo, neither do I. But maybe that's because we're men. Malela, you're being cynical. Conchita, don't pay them any mind. Palomo, no, I like to hear what you have to say. Conchita, mamá, you did well in sending for him. Ophelia, only a fool can fail to understand the importance of having a lector read to us while we work. Marela, well, Cheche is not very happy with him. Ophelia, that's because Cheche is a fool. Cheche, no, I haven't said anything. Ophelia, I heard what you told Palomo this morning, and we're not going to do away with the lector. When I lived in Havana, I don't remember ever seeing a tobacco factory without a lector. As a child, I remember sitting in the back and listening to the stories. That has always been our pride. Some of some of us cigar workers might not be able to read or write, but we can recite line recite lines from Don Quixote or Jane Eyre. So here you can see. And folks can hear the rest of that at the 20th anniversary staging of Anna in the Tropics. That was Nilo Cruz, the Pulitzer Prize winning playwright who's been with us here today. Thank you, Nilo, so much for making this time. Thank you for your time. And that's Sundial for Tuesday, January 24th. 
Leslie Ovalle Atkinson is our lead producer. Elisa Baena is our producer and social media editor. Our engagement editor is Katie Lepre-Cohen. Our digital editor is Mateo Sanchez. Katie Munoz is our interim managing editor. Our senior news editor is Jessica Bakeman. Peter J. Meritz is WLRN's vice president of radio and Sundial's engineer. If you like that theme music, that's the Miami Afro-Cuban funk band Palo at gopalo.com. If you missed any part of this conversation, you can download a podcast of this program. Just search for WLRN Sundial on your podcast app. Coming up tomorrow on the program, I am not making this up. National humor columnist Dave Barry joins us. We talk about his life growing up and who taught him to come up with his famous one-liners that make you literally laugh out loud. I'm Carlos Frias. Thanks for listening. Public Media.